This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Anthony Mara. He is the New York Times bestselling author of A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, which was longlisted for the National Book Award and won the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. It was selected as one of the 10 best books of 2013 by the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, Salon, New York Magazine, Publishers Weekly, and Library Journal, among others. A Constellation of Vital Phenomena tells the story of an unlikely trio of Chechens, including an eight-year-old girl, her older male neighbor, and a doctor at an abandoned hospital coming together to survive in the midst of war. While the story has flashbacks to the mid-90s, a majority of the narrative takes place in 2004. Mara spent a semester studying in Russia in 2007, and we began the interview talking about why he chose that destination for his semester abroad. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a scientist. Um, I wanted to you know, be, be an astronaut, but you need to pass pre-calculus before they give you the keys to the space shuttle. Um, no one told me that. Um, and, and yeah, I, um, at some point I, um, I just fell in love with, with books. It began with, um, sort of pot boilers I found, um, in, in the attic that my, my dad used to read, um, you know, Tom Clancy and John Grisham and, um, Michael Crichton. Um, I think I, I, up until maybe 2003, um, I'd read every single book that Michael Crichton had written multiple times. Um, and it was really that, that sense of, of getting lost in these imagined worlds of being, um, of being placed outside of yourself, of, of falling through the earth and, and winding up inside the hearts and minds of people whom you would never have the opportunity to meet in, in your daily life. Um, and there's seeing something absolutely magical about that experience of, of, of being transported, um, you know, the, the English language is, is just a few letters, um, and we're able to cobble it together into these, you know, magnificent kingdoms. Um, and, and there was something in that alchemy of, of using something as simple and mundane as language to create, um, to create these inner worlds that, that I really found remarkable. Um, and, and, and I wanted to see how it was done. Um, and, and, that's that's about how I, I started writing. You spent a semester studying in Russia in 2007. What brought you there? I, I've been fascinated with with Russia for a um, for a while. I in when I was um, a few years earlier, I had taken a uh, a class in Russian literature and, and and just fell in love with with these 19th century novels. Um, you know, reaching reaching the end of War and Peace is is a milestone in any literary um, or reading life, regardless of whether or not you like it. Um, th- there's just this, this sense of immensity and scale to, to their literature, to their culture, to these these swings in history um, that I just found um, absolutely fascinating. Um, and um, and yeah, and 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 so the so Russia sort of seemed like the place to go to. And what was your experience there that led to your interest in Chechnya? Well, I um, I lived down the street from a, a Russian military cadet academy, and every day I would see these cadets marching 
along the street, and they were maybe 16, 17 years old. Um, they wore these powder blue military uniforms, peak caps, press trousers, and they would march around the neighborhood. And they would pass over this, this metro station, um, and on the metro platform, um, a few hundred feet below, um, there were these Russian veterans of the Chechen wars who were um, just a few years older than these, these uh, cadets. And they, too, wore their uniforms, um, but theirs weren't pressed. Um, some of their uniforms were hemmed because they had, had lost limbs. Um, and they would you know, talk and drink and um, solicit spare change from passing commuters. And it seemed like there was this, this vast chasm between, um, between the street level where these, you know, these kids were marching around in their uniforms and this metro platform where kids a couple years older um, were, were sitting there having, having um, experienced war. And, of course, there was a chasm that was Chechnya. Um, and I, I realized that, like many Americans, I didn't know the first thing about Chechnya. I couldn't find it on a map. Um, it was just a, a strange word that was vaguely synonymous with far-flung poverty and terror. Um, and so I started reading about Chechnya, um, history books, journalistic accounts, and um, I quickly became um, fascinated with its, its remarkable culture and history. Um, in the 19th century, it was something of a proving ground for um, many of the great uh, golden age Russian writers, Tolstoy and Pushkin and Lermontov, all spent time in, in Chechnya and all wrote, um, wrote about it. Tolstoy, in fact, um, began writing his very first novel um, while he was um, while he was in Chechnya, and um, he returned to the region in, in fiction 50 years later for his final book, Haji Murad. Um, and so it sort of bookends his, his career. Um, and as I was, was, was doing all this, this um, reading, simply just to, to fill some of the, the gaps in my, my knowledge, um, I, I would come across these stories of ordinary civilians who um, would go to remarkable lengths to um, maintain some sort of vestige of their humanity, despite the geopolitical forces that might otherwise have stripped them of it in the first and second Chechen wars in the mid-90s and early 2000s. Um, and it was it, these these stories of, of just average people who, whose um, lives weren't remarkable or newsworthy enough to ever uh, make it to the front pages really resounded with me. And um, and at one point, I, I tried to find a novel um, set during the First and Second Chechen War um, that that was available in English, um, and and I couldn't find it. And so, to some extent, um, it was it was uh, I came to this this book as a reader as much as a writer. This was a book I wanted to find on a bookstore shelf and and take home with me, um, but it wasn't there yet. Um, so I wrote it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anthony Mara, author of the novel A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. You basically started writing this, and you had never been to Chechnya. Correct. And so you used books to sort of form your imagination of what it looked and felt like. Yeah, there were... were, um... Um, a number of books that 
most useful were um, were books that were formed um, from on the ground reporting or memoirs um, that that give that were less about the the generals and the politicians and the military commanders than they were about um, the ordinary people who were sort of caught in the middle. And there were um, there were I, I consulted maybe two dozen books in total, um, but there was maybe four or five that that I read and reread and reread and until they began to form this um, this uh, blueprint of, of 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 that world for me, um, which I then began to populate with these these characters that um, that I created, and um, I, I didn't go to Chechnya until I was um, in the very last um, stages of of editing the novel um, um, a couple years a couple years later. And um, it was more of a fact-checking trip than it was um, a research trip. Yeah, this your trip was called the Seven Wonders of Chechnya. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I um, so I was I Chechnya is is not the easiest place to to get to, um, and I found on Twitter um, the first Chechen tour guide, and. Um, I signed up for this one-man tour called uh, "The Seven Wonders of Chechnya," which uh, which she, <laughs> she had put together, um, and uh, and it ended up a number a, a few of the wonders I couldn't get to because my applications to um, the FSB, which is the, the sort of modern incarnation of the KGB, um, were denied. Um, but we basically just just traveled around for um, for ten days, and and uh, Chechnya is only about the size of Connecticut. Um, so, being based in Grozny, which is more or less in the middle, um, you can you can get to uh, sort of all four corners um, in a day. Um, and it was really um, one of the remarkable experiences uh, of my life. I've never um, been been more welcomed or or felt more. Um, more generosity than than I did from um, the people whose whose um, homes I stayed in or um, who I met along the way. When you were doing your tour of Chechnya, did you talk to people about the warriors or not? I did uh, here and there. It's it's something that people are understandably hesitant to 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 bring up, um, particularly with with strangers. Um, um, and and I felt slightly reluctant to to bring up these traumas when other people would bring them up. I, I would you know certainly ask questions and and try to understand what it was like. And usually when people spoke about the present, it was always in relation to the past. So for instance, I met a young man who worked at a gym as a personal trainer, and I was sort of asking him you know about what his life was like now. And he sort of looked at me and said, you know, I work at a gym now. Five years ago, I didn't have a job. Today, I can walk around the streets all night long if I want. There's even um, even street lamps. Uh, five years ago, I couldn't leave my, my flat after five o'clock. And there was certainly the sense that the prosperity of the present is entirely relative to the past. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anthony Mara, author of the novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. The structure of this book is so interesting and and so complex because you have, 
you know, there's sort of these these main characters, and there's the doctor, Sonia, and her sister, Natasha, and there's Ahmed, the neighbor of the man who disappears, Doka. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. And, and Hava, mm-hmm. the daughter, and Kassan and his son. And th- they have these woven tales where there's past and present. And how did you handle that as a writer? Because you're writing in, in two sort of decades, and, and it's so interwoven. I, I, I guess I had a couple of distant North Stars as I was working. I, I knew that, that there was one, one particular part of the end that I knew that I just felt in my bones, a certain plot development that had to occur. And I sort of held that out in front of me. And the entire book was, as I was working on it, was trying to write to that point in time. It's sort of like, you know, when you're driving on the road, um, I've, I've heard the, the novelist Edward P. Jones describe his writing process like this. And it, it was one that, that I found to be the case with me. You're driving from San Francisco to L.A., and you have L.A. as your destination. But along the way, you're going to come across all of these detours and these side attractions and and all of these points along the road that you never would have imagined you would have stumbled upon when you set out from your house to drive to L.A. And I had sort of that experience working on it. I wrote I wrote it straight through chapter by chapter. I didn't write out different storylines as I was working. I didn't really plot it out. I kept a list at the bottom of my Word document with possibilities. Um, it was just this long series of questions, all of which began with either maybe or what if. Maybe this happens, what if so-and-so does this, thinks this, feels that. And I almost never looked back at that list. And sort of once I, I had it down, the, the ideas that were worth remembering stuck. And as as I was, was working on it um, and trying to figure out how I was going to put together this complicated structure, I was constantly sort of surprised. There were a lot of, there's a lot of points in the book that, that probably seem inevitable that I didn't really stumble upon until I was nearly there. And I sort of had the faith that that I would stumble upon the next thing. And a lot of that came because Whenever I didn't know what to do, I would look back at what I'd already written. Um, and so all of the major pieces in the story are laid out in basically the first 100, 120 pages. And so little details, little moments that I thought nothing of when I first wrote them later on down the line became quite quite important uh, to the novel as a whole. Um, and so I think that, that that sort of overlapping and constantly cycling back to gives it a sense of, of cohesion. And I felt that if I was going to tell this story set in, in this time period, it had to be fragmented. It couldn't be a traditional story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know, rising action, denouement, that in these circumstances, you know, war shatters people, places, buildings, families, and I think our sense of time and our sense of, of narrative as well. And all of these characters are are trying to put their pasts back together. They're trying to, to reassemble their families. And oftentimes they're they're not able to to recover what's lost, but in the act of, of trying to, they, they end up um, reassembling something else entirely. And so I wanted the book at a structural level to embody this yearning that these characters have to piece together their lives and, and to mend these these um, separate stories into a communal whole. 
how did you balance your research with the actual writing? I mean, in, in your note in, in the back, you list a lot of books um, that you read to inform you about this place. How did you balance that out? You know, I'd, I'd been reading about Chechnya for a few years with no intentions of, of writing about it. So I sort of had this background uh, research just already already there. And from that point, you know, when I started writing the book, it was really, I would research where necessary. It was sort of a peculiar problem, I guess, in, in, in that I, I had to assume that no reader picking up the book would have any have any experience or, or knowledge of Chechnya. So it was not only trying to create these characters' lives and, and shape their stories, but also give enough context so that it would all make sense in, in the reader's mind. But I was very wary of showing off the research. You know, there's, I think there's a natural um, impulse to want to prove, you know, that, that you've done your homework. But as a reader, I think that little kills the, the magic of, of fiction faster than the realization that you're reading a history lesson. So I usually, I tried to um, incorporate research only where it was necessary to um, to give life to, to the stories of, of, of these characters. Um, and often it came from these, these small little moments rather than sweeping, you know, facts and figures. And the character of Kassan was, was one invention that, that really um, assisted uh, the, the research or um, giving enough historical and contextual background. He's a, a historian who spends his life trying to write this epic multi-volume history of Chechnya. And every time he gets close to finishing it, um, there's a shift in, in political power in Moscow, uh, which requires him to rewrite the entire book to conform with the prevailing um, political ideology. And because history was so much a part of his life and, and his essence, I was able to hopefully telegraph enough of that through him that the other uh, characters' stories sort of fall into, um, into a historical sense. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anthony Mara, author of the novel A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. In your author's note, you said that the axis on which this novel rests is formed from two narratives shared by Islamic and Christian traditions, that of a parent asked to sacrifice a child and that of an orphan orphan delivered into a family responsible for her orphanhood. How did you hear these stories, and was that truly the genesis of, of this book? Well, I think it's, it's a tough question to answer whenever you talk about what the genesis is of, of, of a book. I, I, I grew up in a Catholic family, and I went to Sunday school and church every Sunday until um, until I graduated high school. And so I had these these stories sort of in, in, in the back of my mind. And sometimes uh, a book is, you know, is the transmitter of, of stories. Other times it's a satellite dish catching, you know, stories that, that have been uh, bouncing around. And in this case, the story of the parent asked to, to sacrifice a child and, and a, of an orphan being adopted into the family um, responsible for his or her orphanhood were two stories that, that I, I just, um, you know, grew up hearing in, in church. And I think there's an innate power in, in that idea both of, of, of sacrifice, what, are, what and who are we willing to sacrifice and for what, and that idea of 
taking in, you know, not even necessarily a child, but um, taking in a burden and and the sacrifice that that entails, which have always sort of stuck with me and ended up sort of making their way in, into the book, um, either intentionally or, or uh, unconsciously. So tell me about your influences. One of the things I ask is if you can read a, a selection from a writer that influenced you. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to read something uh, from Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson. Um, and I mentioned earlier that, that when I was 18 or 19, I went to I enrolled in this writing class at a, a community, community center. And um, this was the book that, that that instructor told me to read. And up until that point, um, you know, I was mainly reading these um, these thrillers and, and mysteries. Um, and this was one of the first works of of contemporary literary fiction that I that I ever read. And um, I was just it was like a um, you know a small little supernova uh, as as I read it. I didn't know that language could be used that way. So I'm just going to read. Um, uh, two sentences from the end of one of the stories. Um, it's it's uh, about a, a man who has suffered um, from a variety of, of addictions, um, and he's recently um, gotten out of rehab, and he has gotten a job as an orderly um, in a home for, um, in, a, in a group home. Um, and he, he says, all these weirdos, and me getting a little better every 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 day, right in the midst of them. I had never known, never even imagined for a heartbeat that there might be a place for people like us. Um, and that I remember when I first reached that 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 short little paragraph, just feeling, um, you know, my heart just ache. Um, that that such a a sad and troubled. Um, experience that, 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 that this character's life was. Um, and yet he's able to end it on this note of, of, um, of hope, um, in, in a way that is completely earned, I think, um, and completely genuine. It must've been really amazing to read that for the first time. It was, it, it was, um, you know, I think there's a handful of books maybe that, that, um, that really can reach into you and, unlock a door to a room you didn't know existed. Um, and, and this was one of them. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you felt was really hard to write or something that you succeeded at or something that changed a lot. Yeah. I'm actually going to read the very first paragraph of the book, which was the last paragraph that I wrote. Um, and it was the one that caused me um, the most trouble probably. Um and it was it was almost that I needed to write the entire book to figure out um, the right words to begin it. Um, on the morning after the feds burned down her house and took away her father, Hava woke from dreams of sea anemones. While the girl dressed, Ahmed, who hadn't slept at all, paced outside the bedroom door, watching the sky brighten on the other side of the window glass. The rising sun had never before made him feel late. When she emerged from the bedroom, looking older than her eight years, he took her suitcase and she followed him out the front door. He had led the girl to the middle of the street before he raised his eyes to what had been her house. Hava, we should go, he said, but neither moved. And so tell me why you chose this. 
it was it, it, it's the first first paragraph of the book, but the last paragraph I wrote, um, and um, and it was it was one that that I struggled with um, in terms of trying to figure out the right the right tone to to start with, um, and that it ultimately felt like um, like I had to to write the entire um, the entire book before um, finally understanding the right words to to begin the story with. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anthony Mara, author of the novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. Where do you write? I write in uh, in my bedroom. I have uh, a desk sort of pressed against the wall, but I'm actually in, in the process of, of turning my uh, the spare room in my apartment into, into a home office, so... So the next book will be written there. But yeah, I've never really been able to get much productive work done um, in cafes or, or libraries. I'm always looking for an excuse to, to do something else. And if people are walking around or, um, you know, there's muffins to eat, uh, well, I might as well throw in the towel. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, well, I, I live in, um, in Northern California, so there's just all sorts of beautiful things happening. Um, I'm just learning to surf. Um, I've gone a couple times, stood up a few times. I haven't been eaten by a shark. So, so far, so good. I'm into long distance running, so I'm I'm usually running a lot. Um, Hanging out with friends, that sort of thing. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, Usually, uh, usually my agent. Uh, She's uh, a really brilliant reader and, uh, and former editor, and she's she's usually, usually the person I first send stuff to. I was in workshops for a number of years, uh, which were immensely um, helpful. But I sort of feel like I've hit a point where where I don't want to show my work to too many people um, before it's ready. And so, so usually, um, her and and uh, and my editor. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, ben and Jerry's and Netflix um, sometimes. Uh, no, I, I think, I think it, uh, it depends, uh, what it is that, that you're being rejected from, I, I guess in terms of, of writing, I, I think that, I think at some point you, you realize that it's not personal and that, and that, uh, acceptance or rejection is usually quite arbitrary. I had a, a short story that was, uh, that was accepted by Mike Curtis, um, who's the editor, um, of the Atlantic. Um, when I was at, at the University of Iowa, um, and it had been rejected by um, by maybe a dozen um, much much smaller um, magazines and, and literary journals beforehand, and it just sort of served as a good reminder that taste is totally subjective, and um, and rejection is part of of the process. That if you're getting rejected a lot, you know you're a writer. And what is your favorite word? I was thinking about that. I think my favorite word is probably lovely. Um, it's it's not a terribly specific or um, or precise description of of anything, but but yet it, it it fits you know certain moods, certain certain experiences like nothing else quite quite does. Um, you know, if, if if you say I had a lovely day, um, well that's pretty good. You've been.
been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Anthony Mara, author of the novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.